Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley, joined by Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Hey. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Roe Act, which is one of the highest profile bills currently being considered on Beacon Hill. Supporters say it is a crucial update to Massachusetts abortion laws, especially since the U.S. Supreme Court might revisit and maybe overturn Roe versus Wade in the near future. Opponents have a very different take. That includes Jim Lyons, the chairman of the Massachusetts Republican Party, who's called the Roe Act a radical infanticide bill. The back and forth will reach a crescendo on Monday, June 17th at 1 p.m. when both sides get to weigh in in a hearing at the Massachusetts State House. And we have two key supporters of the bill here with us at WGBH. State Senate President Emerita Harriet Chandler, who filed the legislation, and Rebecca Hart Holder, the executive director of NARAL Massachusetts. Thank you both for being here. Thanks for having Thank us. Uh, Senate President Emerita, is it okay if I call you, I was going to ask if I could call you Harriet from here on out, but before we started rolling, you mentioned that your preferred name is Harley, right? Yes, it is. Okay. Two E's at the end. <laughs> Thank you for the dispensation. <laughs> and, and Rebecca, we should go with Becca, Becca. correct? All yes. right. Before we hear from you two, Peter Kadzis, just so our guests and our listeners have a sense of where you're coming from as we talk about this issue, can we get a thumbnail sketch of your thinking when it comes to abortion and abortion rights? Yeah, well, in political terms, I think that the um, limited state-by-state -state rollback of Roe v. Wade is extremely divisive um, and not at all helpful. I think in Massachusetts, we have uh, a very solid base from which to proceed if the legislature decides to proceed at all. I mean, um, I've more or less grown up with a woman having a right to choose up until 24 weeks. And what interests me about today is um, ha having spent several days reading around the subject in the ins and outs, I recognize that there are a lot of what I'm just going to call fine points that I just didn't know about. And I think we're lucky to have the senator here who's the sponsor of the bill to help us, you know, understand what is going on. Because I think a lot of people are trying to understand what's at issue here. That is a perfect setup for my next question. Harley and Becca, can you start us off by explaining what the Roe Act would do if it becomes law? Well, it basically takes the language of Roe v. Wade and that decision that came down in 73, and it writes it into state law. And it allows a person to seek an abortion late in pregnancy if there is a threat to their health or to their life or if the fetus will not survive the pregnancy. The, the pregnancy. And finally, it allows young women under the age of 18 to seek an abortion on their own terms, just like any other pregnancy-related and contraceptive care. So it, it really, it's not this incredibly radical idea. It really does some very straightforward things. And I'll add a couple more things that are the fine points that Peter was talking about. It also updates outdated right. definitions in our law of abortion um, and pregnancy. It would remove an, a currently unenforced 24-hour waiting period for abortion care um, that we're concerned could come back to life in the event that the federal judiciary takes action. And it would codify 
uh, insurance coverage for abortion care for people who are between insured. So currently, women are able to get that care on mass health, and it would just make sure that that continues when people are between insurance. I want to dig a little bit deeper into the points that you two have just made, just in case listeners haven't had a chance to sit down as I did earlier today and look at the law as it stands now and the, the bill and the changes it would make. When you talk about how the bill would change the definition of abortion, can you describe that in a little more detail, Becca? Yeah, absolutely. So the current law says um, that abortion is the knowing destruction of the life of an unborn child. And then it defines unborn child as the individual human life in existence and developing from implantation. This is straight out of the playbook of, of anti-choice folks who want to try to eliminate the right to abortion care overall. So um, this is what we call fetal personhood language, and it um, really gives us pause when we're thinking about access to abortion in a world where Roe v. Wade could be overturned. So what would the legislation on file, how would it change that? Let me just add something to what uh, Becca has just said, and that is you have to remember that our law was written at the time in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade was decided by an abortion an anti-abortion legislature. So there are things in that piece of legislation that are just inflammatory, that are not medically sound, and we would like to get remove that. So what would the new, and I don't want to be too arcane here, but I think all this stuff is pretty important. What would the new description of abortion be in lieu of what you described, Becca? How would it be described if the Roe Act passes? Right. So it basically takes these medically inaccurate definitions of uh, fetal personhood and says that pregnancy doesn't start from the moment of implantation, or the personhood rather, doesn't start from the moment of implantation. So it updates them uh, in a more scientifically accurate way. My recollection is that, and I don't have the legislation in front of me, but that it uses the phrase a, a fetus implanted in, in a, a uterus. uterus, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, and also, I think we should maybe talk in, in as much depth as we can here about this 24 weeks, pre-24 and post-24 week question, what the status quo is and how it would change it. Tell me if I'm right here. And then, Peter, I swear I'll let you get in. <laughs> so my understanding is that right now, to get an abortion before 24 weeks, it needs, needs to be deemed necessary by a physician and performed by a physician. Am I correct there? Yes. Okay. And then post-24 weeks, my understanding, again, the bar would be lowered by your legislation, uh, Harley, that uh, right now you there's no question of fetal viability coming into play, correct? Right now, a doctor needs to decide that there's a substantial risk of grave impairment to the physical or mental health of the mother and that any alternate procedure would be worse for the mother, and that bar would be lowered if the ROAC It passes, would be lowered, right? but... At this point in time, we already say that it will make, if it, if it harms the mother's, if there's a threat to the mother's life or health, uh, that remains. Uh, we have added, though, the issue of what happens if there is a fatal fetal anomaly, and that is if there's something seriously wrong with the fetus, which usually doesn't show up in the early months of, of a pregnancy, but does show up at the end, what happens then? The fetus can't, can't survive outside of the, the utero. And that is a very important consideration. And that's why we added this fatal fetal uh, anomaly. It's fatal. Fatal is, is, is the key word here. In, in other words, the child would be born dead. Or would last a very short, short time. time. Let's put aside the 
um, measures you folks consider improvements to Massachusetts law. I think, opinion first, I think it's unlikely that Roe v. Wade will be overturned um, lock, stock, and barrel. I think the greater likelihood is that restriction upon restriction upon restriction will be added. But I don't know. I mean, it, it is a crapshoot. But even if the worst-case scenario were to emerge and that Roe was overturned, would not current Massachusetts law, no matter how imperfect it may be, still protect women in Massachusetts? The answer is sort of. So there's a Supreme Judicial Court decision from 1981 that says that uh, mass health or state Medicaid has to treat um, abortion the same as it treats pregnancy. And the decision suggests that we have a stronger right to privacy in our Constitution than in the federal Constitution. I think there's good reason to believe that if Roe fell um, and the, the SJC had to weigh in, that they would find that there is a more protective right to um, access to abortion in our state constitution. However, the right to access abortion care is not affirmatively written into the mass general laws. So that's a, a very important, I think, fundamental change that we're trying to make here. We're trying to say that as a matter of policy, the state of Massachusetts believes that all people should have access to abortion care if that's the path they choose. So in other words, Governor Baker's generalization that Massachusetts, women in Massachusetts would be essentially okay if Roe was overturned is incorrect. Um, I'm not sure that I would go so far as to say incorrect. I'm saying we could do better. We can put it okay. in the law and I, do better. I, I'd like to go back a little ways, if sure. you don't mind, Peter. You've, you've triggered something in me. I'm a bit older than most of you, and I remember the bad old days. I remember why it was important to put Roe v. Wade on the books. I remember the backstreet abortions that got, went on as a matter of course. I remember when women who had no place to turn, uh, went to abortionists, and they, if they survived the abortion, they could be maimed for life. It was a terrible time. Women had no control over their own bodies is really what happened. And the sort of that Becca talks about, that's really not good enough, not, not in 2019. This is the 21st century. I think we expect better. Okay, point, point well taken. I have a however here, and, and I'm going to quote, I'm going to reference national polls, although the Massachusetts polls run pretty uh, much in line uh, in, with them. And that's that the majority of Americans don't want to see a change in Roe v. Wade. Again, I'm not talking about the refinements, no matter how important they may be in the Roe Act. But most Americans are in favor of allowing a woman to choose to abort her pregnancy. I think you're right in that, and that would be true. But we have just witnessed in the last two weeks, we have witnessed a rash of states, of red states, who have come about with some of the harshest, most draconian oh. laws imaginable. And what is going to happen there? Probably at some point, there will be a lawsuit and that lawsuit, one or many, because there are, it's happening in many states, will find its way to the Supreme Court. It'll take a while because it has to go through the court system, but it, it'll take a while. But when that happens, the thing that most women 
have been most afraid of, that the Supreme Court might well overturn Roe v. Wade, could happen. When we, when I initially filed this legislation in January, <clears throat> that possibility was never there. We always talked about, but what if, what if we were stuck? What if we had no Roe v. Wade? Could that happen? Well, we're there now. There could be no Roe v. Wade because one of those many lawsuits that I think will happen may find its way to the Supreme Court, well, and that, then we have a problem. That could be. Where I was going with the public opinion is to the termination of pregnancy in the third trimester. That seems to be where meaningful disagreement creeps in. I, 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 I think, I know Massachusetts politics pretty well. I think that that will creep in here. Well, it might be worth citing that Susan B. Anthony list poll, which the opponents of this legislation rolled out not too long ago. Peter, you mentioned it a moment ago, but their finding, I think I've got this number right, was that 62% of Massachusetts voters opposed allowing more late-term uh, abortions. Does that give you pause at all, Becca and oh Harley? Well, they 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 also didn't ask the question. Right. Was the the if the health of the mother was at stake, or if in the case of a fatal fetal anomaly, and when that question was asked in a poll, I forget who commissioned it, but it was done by Mass Inc. We did. You Nay did. Roll. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, there we go. Well, we have the perfect person to discuss the results of that poll. Well, yeah, you tell so, us then. So we commissioned a poll in October um, by Mass Inc., um, and we asked a lot of the questions that we're talking about today. We oversampled Catholics, and I'm sure we'll get to that conversation. But we found that 76% of respondents supported an exception to the ban on abortion after 24 weeks in pregnancy in the case of lethal fetal anomaly. We're talking about a small universe of people. And I think, you know, for those of us who are parents, um, we know how devastating it could be I mean, even to just imagine getting that kind of diagnosis in pregnancy. And so I think it really makes sense that people understand that women and families should stay in Massachusetts for that kind of health care. Did you guys ask a question about uh, the, the sort of slightly reduced bars I mentioned earlier to uh, how what's the current language? Is it physical and mental health? If there is a concrete threat, I'm paraphrasing, but I think it's pretty close, concrete threat to the physical and or mental health of the woman then that is the bar that needs to be reached you know, post, post 24 weeks, right? It's not only in the case of lethal fetal anomalies, if I remember correctly. We didn't ask that question because the United States Supreme Court has said that those are valid exceptions to abortion care post 24 weeks. They, they did that um, in Roe v. Wade in a companion case, Doe v. Bolton. It, it might be helpful for me and in, in hopefully for our listeners to, to delve in with a little more specificity to exactly what a fatal fetal anomaly is? A fatal fetal anomaly could be being born without a complete brain, basically. Okay. The fetus, when born, could not live under those circumstances. Now, is this an umbrella term that goes beyond what might be called a birth defect? 
when when we were working with the senator and with our House um, lead sponsors to try to develop this language, we were very intentional that we did not want politicians to define this. We purposefully did not put a definition of lethal fetal anomaly in the law because we think it's it's left it should be left to clinicians. It's it's not something I think that we should be defining. We are not talking about disabilities. We are talking about babies that are born who simply are not going to survive. So I understand the desire to to, to really put a firm definition in law. I, I, I'm a lawyer myself. I, I want things to be black and white, but we're talking about very gray situations. Well, I shouldn't say gray, but we're talking about very difficult situations where families are going through a, a really serious trauma. And, and it, it's just not for legislators to decide if this is the right moment or not to terminate. No, well, it, it, two, two observations. One, it's the word fatal is mm-hmm. in there. So mm-hmm. that's pretty descriptive. Bl- that's yeah. pretty black and white. On the other hand, and this is a political judgment, legislators are going to be passing this. And it strikes me that one may not want, you know, elected officials to get involved with defining clinical terms, but they may. But not if they are. That's, I think, why the term fatal fetal anomalies is used. We tried to narrow but really the decision about what is a fatal fetal anomaly is, and this runs through the whole bill, it is between a patient and her doctor. So hypoth- the decisions must be made by them. Hypothetically, could a fatal fetal anomaly mean a genetic defect that would result in a child dying in all likelihood by the age of 10, for example? No, I don't think so no? at all. Even though the definition is by design somewhat elastic? Well, I mean, again, you know, the senator and I are not medical professionals. I, I'm not a maternal fetal medicine specialist. I, 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 I frankly don't feel qualified to answer. I think the answer to your question is no, but I'm, that's, not my, that's not my professional area of practice. But I, I assume there are doctors yes. ready to testify and establish guidelines or offer their professional opinion as to what this is. The reason I'm asking this question is um, I have great sympathy for uh, Catholics in particular. Uh, I, I was raised Roman Catholic who accept the, you know, what they would consider the, the total sanctity of life. I think that they're done a disservice by leaders who brand things willy-nilly as, you know, uh, a, a, a bill that will okay killing children. But that level of rhetoric is going to hit at some point. I mean, it's, it's already it, it, it's hit. It's already hit. Infanticide, you know, that this is infanticide legislation. When, Senator, what you're saying is you and the, the people who support you are, are trying to are, have gone to great lengths to draw a distinction here. I think we have. I think the term itself suggests it. I think that uh, we have tried to narrow and to be very clear in narrowing. We are not capable of making a decision about what is a fatal fetal anomaly, but a doctor is, and a doctor is licensed by the state, overseen by the state, has to report very clear report reporting uh, requirements uh, back to the state about when a, an abortion is done. 
I think this is a very important thing. I think what we're trying to do is perhaps give the, the appropriate person the authority to make that judgment with the consent of and, the, and working with their patient. Well, it's a patient-doctor issue here. You say it's a patient-doctor issue. I know one of the points that opponents have made is as they read the bill, and tell me if they're wrong mm -hmm. here, under 24 weeks, the abortion wouldn't need to be performed by a physician. Is that correct? Uh, I'm. I haven't actually I, seen that language. I haven't okay, either. Okay. Then, may, by the way, I may. <laughs> I may be misreading. You know, I tried to go through and cross-reference the bill against existing state law. Perhaps yeah. I misread it. So, so it would still need to be performed by a physician under 24 weeks, it, as it, opposed to some other practice, medical. Yeah, current practice would be would be followed. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I'm incorrect about that change. The other change, which I know I'm not incorrect about, because you mentioned it earlier, is allowing minors to provide their own consent without having a parent That's provide a it for them. I know this is controversial as well. Um, why was this an important change to make? Because there are, in, in most cases, I'm a mother and I'm a grandmother, and I would think that most of the young people in this state have good relationships with their parents and can talk, to this, talk about this with their parents. But there are cases there are too many cases where that isn't true. There are too many cases where a, a young woman maybe is a foster child, uh, doesn't have access to her mother, maybe actually pregnant because she is the victim of an incest situation. Maybe uh, th there is the maybes go on and on. If you talk to doctors, and we have done a lot of talking to doctors on this, they see it. They see this more cases than one would expect them to see it. And this is an opportunity basically to say that this young woman is going to have to give birth to that child. Nobody's going to help her to make that decision. She's going to make that decision herself. Uh, this is the only time, I believe, in a pregnancy where you turn now to a, to a third party to make, make that decision. There's something called a judicial bypass. There is a provision in the law that allows if parents do not consent and the, the daughter wants to move forward, she can go before a judge. Mm -hmm. Imagine being 15 and getting yourself to a courthouse and going before a judge. I mean, I think that's well, really... Well, a counter... Yeah, but... But, but, but the, let's the, talk about the specifics. I mean, because I... I, cause I the, the counter is a parent saying, imagine you're 15 and you're going alone to have an abortion. Of course. And listen, I'm a mom. I have a daughter. I would be mortified if my daughter didn't feel safe enough to come to me if she found herself pregnant. It isn't up to the legislature to legislate family communication. It's just not possible. We know that 73% of teens um, in a recent study from Planned Parenthood came to the clinic with their parents because they could. That's a, that's, that's a lot of teens. Yeah. The other 27% are disproportionately low income and teens of color. And for whatever reason, they weren't able to go before a judge. Uh, sorry, go and, and, get, and bring their parent with them to help them make this decision. Going before a judge for a teenager is no small feat. What, the, what teens who find themselves pregnant need 
is counseling. They need the smart clinicians at places like Planned Parenthood who are used to working with teens, who are used to spotting coercion, who are used to spotting abuse, who can talk to teens about birth control options. And frankly, judges are not equipped to do that. It's just not what they're trained for. I, I'm, not, I'm not arguing that. I'm, I'm not really arguing the point. What I'm trying to get at is we have a legislature that um, the House of Representatives has not passed. It's taken them 10 years. Maybe they'll pass it this year. But 10 years to um, pass, um, let's just call it a modernized sex education bill. One of the principal reasons that people are opposed or don't want to be recorded for a vote, which personally I think might be the more significant, is because of the lack of parents should have the final say over what the kids are taught. Even though this legislation has uh, a parental opt-out I just have a hard time seeing this provision exempting teens under 18 getting through the House of Representatives, just as a practical matter. Harley, what do you say? Well, I think in most cases that won't be a problem because in most cases the the, the, the young person will have the kind of re- response and the kind of relationship with the parent, so that this won't be a problem. But what about the political calculus Peter is talking about? Is uh, that going to pose is, problems for your bill? This is always a problem. It was a problem 25 years ago when I ran for office for the first time, and we're back to exactly where we were then, exactly where we were then, and that's too bad. Uh, we, I thought we had come a long way, and I worry about the young people who will find themselves pregnant in the future and will not have any place to go. You know, people of greater affluence have always been able to have an abortion. I I hate to get into social justice issues here, but it's a social justice concern. This is a reasonable place to do that. All right. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Uh, They've always been able to find a place to have an abortion. They have the money for the abortion. They have the contacts, et cetera. But I'm thinking of people of color now. I'm thinking of people who are not wealthy enough to be able to go anywhere to get an abortion. And I'm thinking of doctors, and I'm thinking of some of the laws that have been passed in Alabama, for example. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? And nobody wants to have an abortion. An abortion is not exactly what you would call another method of contraception. I I could picture pushback at Beacon Hill that said, But, Senator, this isn't Alabama. Um, Yes, you're right that a a relatively, you know, small number of disadvantaged children um, are are in a very bad spot here. But does does that mean you create a loophole in the law? I'm playing devil's advocate here, but I think we all know that that you're going to confront that. It's the inherent structural funkiness of this particular episode that you have two people who could not possibly have children discussing and debating this legislation (laughs) with two, which is kind of awkward just to put it on the table. Well, I said, by by the way, I said to Adam, you know, Adam, I'm not sure I want to join in. (laughs) No, well, because of the, it's, I, I know, talking to my wife, talking to other women about it. Um, but when Adam said, no, no, there's two women that are going to be there, I said, okay, that's fine. But so, uh, yeah, go I, ahead. I, I, listen, Peter, I think you're making good points, and I appreciate that you're playing devil's advocate. 
Massachusetts didn't shy, shy away on gay marriage. We didn't shy away on access to universal health care. This is a national moment to lead. This is a national moment to say, look, with the ascension of Justice Kavanaugh to the court, states like Alabama, states like Missouri, states like Ohio, states like Georgia took this as an opportunity to challenge Roe v. Wade. Here, we're taking it as an opportunity to expand access because we have a core set of beliefs that women are equal. So if you guys were able to get this passed in the Senate and the House, you'd still be dealing with the possibility of a gubernatorial veto. I think, I don't know if it's the last utterance he made on this topic, but Governor Baker is on the record saying, quote, I don't support late-term abortions. I support current law here in Massachusetts. It's worked well for decades for women and families here in Massachusetts, and that's what we support. You think you can change his I, mind? I, I think I think he was caught by a reporter. Those Don <laughs> reporters. And but he, I don't think he expected the question, and I don't think he had thought about it. You know, one thing I must say, and I'm saying this as a Democrat, I believe that our governor, a Republican, has always been exceptionally open to social issues, exceptionally open, and that's why we've had the transgender issues that we've had and his signature on these kinds of bills. And I think that when given an opportunity to think about it and understand what it means, I, I, I think that he's a reasonable person. Well, also on the more cynical note, um, by the way, I, I think you're, you're correct. I remember the circumstances un, under which the governor gave yeah. that answer. And, and it was a, you know, I don't think he was a, expecting that. However, it's a classic Charlie Baker answer, and it appears definitive, but you can drive a truck around. You know, he said on... Uh, By the way, that's a compliment. <laughs> he said on Boston Public Radio recently, in response to a question from Marjorie Egan about whether or not he thought women should have to travel out of state for abortion care, he said no, he didn't think that. So um, I choose to believe that there's a window. I mean, listen, when you hear about families faced with this tough decision and thinking they have to fly across the country, away from their support systems, away from their faith communities. Um, it, it, it's devastating. I think he he gets that. I, I, I'm choosing to believe that he gets that. Becca, you mentioned earlier on, uh, I can't remember exactly what phrase you used. Uh, I want to say Catholic opposition to this legislation. And I'm curious about how much of an effort the Catholic Church here in Massachusetts is making to keep this from becoming law. So any insights that you have or that Harley has would be great. I'm sure they're, they're, they're not happy about this legislation. Uh, I think that's an understatement. Have you heard from anyone directly, you know, uh, Catholic leaders, Catholic lobbyists, to communicate that displeasure? There's also some evangelical issue here that, I mean, I, I, let's be, put all the cards in the Oh, table. sure. Good point. Uh, they're not, the Catholics are not the only ones. Um, but equal marriage didn't happen overnight, and they weren't happy about that either. What they are not realizing, I think, is that over the many years, I've been in the legislature for 26 years now, actually 25 years this year, and I can see changes that have come. We did not have a pro-choice legislature when I came in at all. We were, we were quite a bit off. We do now. And the question is, the younger people who are coming into the legislature think differently. They really see the issues in a very different way. They're not as 
they're not necessarily going to follow what is told to them by some sort of a religious authority figure. They're going to think it through themselves. And I think that's very important. This is the kind of question that we want them to think through themselves. We want them to think, you have a daughter, you have a sister, you have a granddaughter. How do you feel about this? What would you feel about this? Just as an aside, I'm fascinated to hear you say that because I know that that, you know, I have a daughter, I have a sister, I have a wife line of thinking and reasoning and arguing is something that some women especially just find incredibly irritating. You know, it shouldn't be about whether you have a daughter or a wife or a mother. That's the way it is. Interesting. That's the way it is. People have to relate it to to themselves personally. This is not an abstract academic question. These are real people. No, it isn't. And frankly, if you really want to get me going on this subject, (laughs) you know, we wouldn't be in this situation if we had that sex education. We wouldn't be in this issue, in this situation, if we had people dealing with really good contraception that is available. We wouldn't, I mean, frankly, abortions are the last step, the last step that anybody wants. But you've got to take those first two steps and people, and I think the younger people today understand it and want it, and I hope they will support it. A political question. It's the habit of the House Speaker to not allow big issues to come to the floor, or frankly, any issue to come to the floor, if it's not going to pass and pass by a comfortable margin. Now, this is the first year this bill has been under consideration, is it not? It is. It is. If past history is any guide, I wouldn't give this bill much of a chance this time around, but I might next year. Am I wrong? Well, I, I guess you're looking at history in the past, and yes, that probably has happened in the past. But the remember, the speaker has a daughter, uh, and he has two granddaughters. This affects him personally. Oh, and, and by the way, and I'm not. I, I'm not. Uh, I am in no way making a judgment as to what the speaker thinks about this bill. You're talking about his M.O. I'm talking about his M.O., his his parliamentary manner of operating. I think that we are in an anomalous moment in history. I mean, I never would have thought that there would be a President Trump, and I also never would have thought in early November 2016 that Roe could potentially fall, and I'd be on a podcast talking about that. But here we are. The speaker acted very, very quickly when Justice Kennedy resigned to take on the senator's nasty woman bill and repeal our pre-row criminal abortion ban. Um, you know, I think if we see moves at the federal level, we're going to see action quickly. And I think it will happen this session. Before we wrap up very quickly, is there anything that people who don't like this bill have said it would do that it would not do that you want to highlight here? Well, I mean, I, I think I would like to highlight, um, and I and I hate to repeat this horrible, hateful rhetoric, but the, this whole notion of infanticide. Right, yeah. I want to be very clear that this decision is about giving choice to families. Whatever decision they make when facing a lethal fetal anomaly, whether that's to carry to term or whether that's to opt to terminate the pregnancy. But it certainly is not about infanticide. I would agree with that, and I would say that this is a decision of abortion care is health care, and we can't forget that. And we have to, we, we, this underlines the whole thing. This is a decision between a, a patient and her doctor. It is not, we, we should not insert ourselves as politicians or as the government into a decision that should be 
the most personal, intimate decision between a patient and her doctor. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of The Scrum. Rebecca Hart, Holder, and State Senate President Emerita Harriet Chandler, a.k.a. Becca and Harley, thank you both for being right. here. Thank you for having us. Peter Kadzis, thanks. I was going to say, how about me? <laughs> You're welcome, Heather. As always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We would love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you haven't already. And if you mentioned us to any friends who might enjoy it, we'd also love to hear from you. You can catch us via email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker. We get essential production help from Gary Mott, Andrew Maswa, and Doug Sugartz. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. 